If you're losing faith in Washington, well, the current standoff over raising the debt ceiling and the possibility of default probably isn't helping. And we've been here before, and it's likely we'll be here again. As of today, lots of political posturing, but no deal. U.S. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen says without one, the U.S. is dangerously close to default and could be unable to pay its bills by next month. Early June is when we project that we will run out of cash and there is a chance it could be as early as June 1st. Of course, there is a lot of uncertainty and I plan to update Congress as new information uh, becomes available, but that's still our current thinking. Republicans want deep spending cuts to slash trillions of dollars from President Biden's climate program, from affordable housing, Medicaid, and more. That's spending already approved by Congress. Democrats want a clean bill to raise the debt ceiling and say negotiations on fiscal reform should be separate from paying off existing debts. Congressional leaders from both parties met with Biden yesterday to begin negotiations, but House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said they made no progress. Everybody in this meeting reiterated the positions they were at. I didn't see any new movement. The president said the staff should get back together. But I was very clear with the president. We have now just two weeks to go. President Biden was more positive and said the meeting was productive. But his basic position remains. The debt ceiling should not be part of any negotiation about spending. I told congressional leaders that I'm prepared to begin a separate discussion about my budget and the spending priorities but not under the threat of default. As I said, I've already cut the deficit by $1.7 trillion in my first two years in office. And the budget just submitted to Congress cuts another $3 trillion in the debt. I'm Anthony Brooks in for Magna Chakrabarty. This is On Point. This hour, what's the path forward on the debt limit? And what did we learn in 2011 when the country came within 72 hours of defaulting? Joining us now is Claudia, Claudia Grisales. She's congressional correspondent at NPR, and she joins us from Capitol Hill in Washington. Claudia, welcome to On Point. Thank you for being with us. Hi, Anthony. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you. So yesterday's meeting produced this public political theater, which seemed to deliver right. the message that the two sides are miles apart. Um, did they make any progress? What's your take? Well, they were really quick to say that they didn't see a lot of progress, but there was a lot of downplaying going into this meeting. And if we look at where all uh, the parties are today, Biden and the four congressional leaders that met, uh, staff is meeting. They're going to meet again on Friday. It was really clear they're aware of the urgency here. And as you played the sound there from House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, where he said, I didn't see any new movement. Um, we did hear signs that there could be movement here. Uh, for example, President Biden has said he will not talk about spending uh, connected to the debt ceiling. But guess what? They're going to be talking about spending uh, <laughs> with the debt ceiling hanging over them, this deadline hanging over them. So that may be a little bit of negotiating tactic, a ga uh, tactics, a game of semantics, because it seems like all of these parties are aware how serious this is the threat to the economy if the country were to hit this deadline uh, as early as June 1. And so 
I think we saw a little bit of progress. Maybe the parties involved did not want to admit that at this point. They're still downplaying because there is still a long ways to go. And it's not clear they're going to beat this deadline. But I think we did see a little bit yesterday. So, Claudia, back up a little bit and remind us of the starting positions of these two sides and the the sort of miles that, uh, that separate these two positions. Right. Many miles. That's a great way to put it. And where they started, they were really far apart. When we look at the beginning of the year, Biden and McCarthy had not even met. They had an initial meeting in February. And Biden said, I want to see your your offer on spending on the budget. Where do you want to start in terms of these talks? And where are House Republicans? Well, they didn't pass their bill with their partisan wish list on what kind of spending cuts, what kind of levels they would like to see over the next decade and what programs could be rolled back, for example, such as unspent COVID relief dollars. And so that didn't come until towards the end of April. And so that gave the president and that gave House Speaker McCarthy a much tighter window to get together. So they spent weeks, they spent months waffling back and forth in terms of one side not uh, detailing enough for the other to start these negotiations. So yes, they were very far apart. Now, we should also note This bill that was finally passed in in April, it was called the Limit Save Grow Act. That's what Republicans called it. It would raise the debt ceiling by $1.5 trillion or until March of next year, whichever happens first. And just to show you how far apart they still were, both parties were at this time, Democrats dubbed this same bill the Default on America Act or DOA Act, uh, signaling that it was not going anywhere past the House. They called it a ransom note to the American people. So a really clear indicator in terms of how far apart they were even just going into this first major meeting yesterday. Right. right. And just to be clear, so that Republican bill, it would basically cut trillions of dollars over the next decade from Biden's climate program, for example. It would also slash spending on everything from affordable housing to Medicaid. Democrats call that a non-starter because it would basically undo big pieces of legislation pushed by Biden and already passed by Congress. Do I have that right? So they did detail a lot of the concerns. Senate Democrats actually held a hearing on this, detailing the concerns related to, for example, adults, certain adults who rely on federal assistance, such as aid for food, who would not be able to access these benefits should a bill like this go into place. And so this is the alarm that Democrats were raising, is that it would really jeopardize a lot of U.S. programs, a lot of families, and it was a threat in terms of their... in terms of their uh, financial well-beings. So this is why this was uh, called a DOA Act for Democrats. Right. Now, as we've mentioned, and we're going to spend a lot of time uh, this hour talking about parallels, differences, and and parallels uh, to what happened back in 2011 when Barack Obama, right. when he was president, there were negotiations over the debt uh, ceiling. The government came within 72 hours of default. Mm-hmm. How is this situation similar or different from 2011? So it is similar in that we're seeing divided government and we're seeing quite the standoff. And as you note, it came so close to the ceiling, you know, within days, within hours of that ceiling, the U.S. credit rating was downgraded for the first time for even getting that close. So it was very partisan. Now, two of the parties involved then are involved today. Biden is then vice president, McConnell in the Senate, but they helped broker this last minute deal. The difference this time is McConnell says, I'm not a 
major player here to President Biden, you need to negotiate with McCarthy. All the Republicans are lining up behind him. You need to agree to some cuts, some changes in terms of what their opening offer is with this Republican bill that they passed uh, recently. So, But we're seeing both sides. These are much more partisan times since 2011, and both sides are very much more entrenched in their corners. McCarthy is a much less familiar opponent for Biden when it comes to negotiations. So they're going to have to overcome a lot to get on the same page. And also, if we look at that House uh, type margin that House Republicans deal with, McCarthy passed this partisan wish list by a vote of 217 to 215. Mm. I mean, by a matter of just uh, less than a handful of votes. Now we have a House member, George Santos of New York, who has run into some legal troubles. We're not sure. Every vote counts. We're not sure, for example, members such as Santos, how they, how they will play into another effort to pass another bill that would be more on a bipartisan basis to reach a deal between House Republicans and President Biden could move through the House. So the stakes are really high. It's a very high partisan situation here. So it's going to be a really, really tall order for everyone to try and reach agreement here. Right. And Claudia, you mentioned George Santos. It's just interesting, just a, a little uh, parentheses here. He actually surrendered to, to, to today to face charges, including wire fraud and money laundering. So that's brand right. new news there about uh, Congressman George Santos. But let me ask you about uh, what McCarthy is facing, Speaker McCarthy is facing. Uh, and this might be one of the key differences this time around compared to 2011. And that is he has a core a very hard right uh, members in, in the caucus. How much power, you know, who are really insisting that he hold firm on these spending cuts, how much power do they have and could they tank the negotiations? That is what is is unclear at this point. How much influence will they have in these specific negotiations? We did see the more extreme wings of the House Republican Party have quite significant influence when it came to, for example, the House Speaker race that led to 15 rounds and some very uh, heavy negotiations between McCarthy and more of these hardliner members of his party. And we also saw it again with this partisan wish list bill the Republican wish list bill to uh, offer this uh, negotiation start to get to clearing the debt ceiling, lifting the debt ceiling in exchange for these spending cuts. And so we have seen these more extreme members of the conference have this influence for McCarthy. It's really unclear how it will play out in this latest test if McCarthy and Biden were to reach some sort of an initial agreement to lift the debt ceiling in exchange for some concessions. Right. Back in 2011, uh, challenging as it was, uh, I recall, and maybe I'm wrong about this, but I recall there was sort of a sense that in the end, the lawmakers would would do this. They wouldn't let the country default. And in the end, they didn't let the country default. Is that still a basic article of faith in Washington today? Or is there a real fear that they might not get this done? I think you do see that real fear there. Just when members, the leaders, were asked about this after the meeting, we heard from um, President Biden and Democrats that the country would not default. We heard it from Senate Minority Leader Mitch McConnell. But when we, when House Speaker Kevin McCarthy was asked about this, he was not as direct in his response. Uh, he said that he hoped the country would not default. So that's where 
things hang in terms of that that increased fear that maybe all of these parties uh, will not be able to get on the same side. Um, but it remains to be seen. It's possible. It's possible they do reach an agreement. All right. Well, lots to talk about this hour. Uh, Claudia Grisales, uh, congressional correspondent for NPR. Let's pause for a moment. I want to come back to you toward the end of the hour. Thank you for joining us for this first section of the of, of the program. We're talking about what's next in the U.S. debt ceiling negotiations as the country creeps closer to running out of cash to pay its bills. When when we return, we're going to be hearing from two people who are on the opposite side of the negotiating table back in 2011 when the U.S. came within 72 hours of defaulting on its debt. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Support for the On Point podcast comes from Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. Ditch the busy work and use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com onpoint. That's Indeed.com onpoint. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. The world's clean energy future relies on ancient elements still in the ground. Without mining, there will not be a clean energy transition. But pulling them out of the ground comes at an environmental and human cost. Mining is intrusive, but the results are the building blocks for products that we use every single day. I'm Meghna Chakrabarty. Join me for Elements of Energy, Mining for a Green Future. Five consecutive episodes right here. So make sure you're following this podcast. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. Today we're talking about the fight over raising the U.S. debt ceiling. And let's take a trip back to 2011 when a similar debate and impasse was taking place when the country came within 72 hours of running out of cash and defaulting. At the center of the negotiations, then Republican House Speaker John Boehner and President Barack Obama. Good evening, everybody. Uh, I wanted to give you an update on the current situation around the debt ceiling. I just got a call about a half hour ago uh, from Speaker Boehner, who indicated that he was going to be walking away from the negotiations that we've been engaged in here at the White House for a big deficit reduction and debt reduction package. Uh, I've talked to Democrat leaders in the House and the Senate, Republican leaders, uh, and I've talked to the White House about keeping lines of communication open. Uh, But uh, at the end of the day, we have a spending problem. Somebody's got to get serious about cutting spending. And our friends across the aisle aren't at all serious about doing what the American people are demanding. Spend less. That was John Boehner, uh, then Republican House Speaker back in 2011. Before him, of course, uh, President Barack Obama. Jason Furman was involved in those 2011 talks before they broke down. He spent eight years as a top economic advisor to President Obama, including as deputy director of the National Economic Council. He's currently the Aetna Professor of the Practice of Economic Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School, and he joins me here in the studio. Jason, welcome to On Points. Great to have you. Great to be here. And uh, joining us from Washington, D.C., Rohit Kumar. He also took part in those talks. In 2011, he was domestic policy director and deputy chief of staff for Senate Republican leader 
Mitch McConnell, now he's the principal and co-leader of PwC's National Tax Services Practice. Rohit, welcome to you. It's great to have you. Thanks for having me. Now, Jason is here in Boston. Rohit, you're in Washington, so you guys can't, like, tear each other apart. But I understand that wouldn't have been a risk. You, you, even though you sat on opposite sides of the table back in 2011, you kind of like each other, right? I'll start with you, um, <laughs> Jason. Uh, it's, an, it's an awkward place to put me in, um, but, I, but I liked Rohit back then. Um, I liked him now. I think the first time I met him was when I went to solicit ideas for what became... Uh, the Recovery Act, the big fiscal stimulus plan. I think I was pretty late for that meeting. I'm not sure I was that interested in Rohit's ideas. So <laughs> I'm not sure I started out looking very good in his eyes. Um, but uh, but hopefully that all got a little bit better later on. All right. Quick uh, quick take from you, Rohit, on, on sort of yeah, the mood I, there. I, right. Uh, Jason and I are basically running a two-man support group for survivors of the 2011 <laughs> debt limit exercise. <laughs> okay. um, he is right. It started, you know, not great. Uh, there was a, what felt like a perfunctory um, to us anyway, like, what are your thoughts on the Recovery Act? Uh, okay, we've done that. Now we're going to go write the Recovery Act. But in by 2010, and really then 11 and 12, um, we were, uh, whether we like, whether we would have liked it or not, we were forced to work together. And luckily for both of us, anyway, we, uh, ended up, uh, doing okay. Well, before I talk to both of you about lessons from 2011, um, I'd love to get a quick hit and I don't want to spend too much on time, time on this because I really do want to get back to 2011, but a quick take on where we are today, how likely we are to default, how likely there will be, uh, be a deal in time to avoid default. Jason, what do you think? So we've had the debt limit as part of the law for a little bit over 100 years now. Congress has raised it nearly 100 times, sometimes with a lot of drama and last minute, like in 2011, very often in a very clear way. I have a general rule when thinking about probabilities that if something has never happened before, default going past the X date, the highest probability you're allowed to give it is 25%. Um, right now, I'm maybe not at 25% for going past the X date, for going into some form of default, but I'm close to there because the sides are so par far apart and it's a it's a genuinely very scary situation. Yeah. Probably be resolved, but probably is not good enough. On right. 25% is a significant uh, risk. Rohit, what do you think? So I'm more optimistic. Um, I don't run the the math quite the same way that Jason does. Uh, but my view, not only because we've always managed to avoid the X date uh, default deadline, but also because, you know, whether it was 2011 or in other transactions, we have come very close in the past. And so getting close is not necessarily evidence that we're actually going to go over the edge, even though it can be hard to know that in the moment. Um, and more importantly, it seems to me like the assembled political leadership sort of understands that going past the X date um, is really not an option. And, you know, there are various statements being made that are trying to leverage into the negotiation, but I think in their heart of hearts, they all know and appreciate we can't actually breach this deadline and not suffer really severe self-inflicted economic consequences. And while we're on that subject, Rowett, and I'm going to ask you both, but let me stick with you, Rowett, what are the consequences? I mean, lay them out. And we all know that we don't want to default. There's a lot of talk about the stock market tanking, um, putting at risk the full faith and credit of the United States. But what's your sort of um, most, <laughs> I guess, grisly explanation of what would happen if we were to default? Yeah, I mean, it's... 
look, the Fed ran a simulation, uh, which they published much, much later, as to what would happen if we defaulted. And their sort of best case scenario, and focusing mostly on the near term, was something like a, you know, an immediate two-quarter recession, a 30% drop in you know, asset values, uh, corporate borrowing rates go up a couple points. The economy ends up being, even a couple of years later, ends up being, uh, I think, 2% smaller than it would have been um, otherwise. And that's sort of the near-term only best case scenario. I don't think it fully contemplates what happens when you sort of uh, repeal, to my mind, like one of the fundamental laws of the current financial system is the unassailability of the dollar. Right. Um, kind of like in the same way that the law of gravity really, no pun intended, grounds us in our current reality. Were you to repeal that fundamental law of the global financial system today, um, I think it would be almost as chaotic as if we were to repeal the law of gravity if such a thing were possible and suddenly we were no longer as tethered to the earth as we are right now. Okay. Jason, do you want to add to that? Yeah, I agree with all of that. There's a lot of uncertainty and it also depends you know, how you go over the debt limit and how long. If you go over for two hours, is calamity going to happen after two hours? Probably not. Um, with each passing day, does the odds of something uh, really bad go up? Yes. So you know, are you on the first day going to shoot yourself in the toe or shoot yourself in the head? I'm not entirely sure, but I don't think we want to find out. We don't want to repeat that over and over again. And the reason this is so important is the largest and most liquid security in the entire world is U.S. Treasuries. Um, they're incredibly safe. They're incredibly liquid. And they undergird everything else, the way banks function, the way you know financial transactions function is all operating through this medium. Um, if that medium suddenly is no longer as safe and no longer as liquid, um, really bad things can happen, not just in the United States, but but around the world. We're talking about lessons learned from 2011 when the country almost defaulted. I'm talking to Jason Furman. He spent eight years as a top economic advisor to President Barack Obama. And Rohit Kumar was the former domestic policy director and deputy chief of staff for Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell on the other side of the table. Jason, I want to come back to you. So Joe Biden led those negotiations for the White House back in 2011. What did he learn and how does that influence how he's handling the crisis, the impasse this time around. Yeah. Look, in 2011, ultimately the crisis was averted. The United States raised the debt limit, but it did it in a way that I think was terrible. Um, the brinksmanship raised interest rates. They ultimately cost the federal government money, not a huge recession amount of money, but if Congress were to pass a law and say, let's collect billions of dollars, set them on fire on the mall, I don't think anyone would think that was a good idea, even if it didn't cause a recession. The stock market plunged. Our, um, our debt got downgraded by one of the three ratings agencies. And so President Obama, looking at that, said, this is not something I want to repeat. We just can't have a process like this again. He shifted to a mode of we're not going to do this types of high stakes brinksmanship debt limit negotiation. And in his second term, he pretty much didn't. And the increases in the debt limit were routine without drama and without all of the problems. And President Biden is taking that approach, um, the approach that works successfully, I think, for the country, um, as well as for President Obama in his second term. 
and carrying it into his right. presidency. And Rohit, what do you think the, the Republicans learn and how that might be informing their position today? So I think the Republican view is if you look at the history of debt limit increases, that you know, it's quite common that they end up being negotiated as a part of a, you know, a broader set of spending decisions. Um, when the shoes were on the exact opposite foot in 2019, so you had President Trump, you had a Senate Republican majority, Mitch McConnell was the Senate majority leader, but Nancy Pelosi was the speaker of a democratically led um, House. McConnell actually went to Trump and said, look, you're going to have to negotiate with her um, over a debt limit increase. This is probably not going to be something you're looking forward to, but you're going to have to do it. Uh, and they did. They actually negotiated for spending increases in that transaction. It was about a $320 billion increase in discretionary spending, both defense and non-defense. And moreover, they actually did it in about three weeks. It, it happened between uh, July 11th and August 2nd, 2019, which is roughly the same period of time that we have available to us uh, now. So I think the Republican view is, look, in the past, both parties have negotiated in conjunction with debt limit increases. It's not an, uh, you know, a, an outlier historical result to have some sort of negotiation. Um, it, we are in a more partisan environment and the rhetoric around it has gotten you know, a little bit more amped up. And so you can understand why people are more concerned, but the fundamentals of the underlying transaction are really not that different. Interesting. I mean, if I could- Yeah, go ahead, Jason. I, I think I disagree a bit um, in emphasis um, from what Rohit just said. First of all, let me just state at the outset, there are a lot of hypocrites on this issue, people who would have voted against raising the debt limit under President Bush and then came around and felt the other way. And, and hypocrites actually maybe is the wrong word. I think some people learn. President Obama said he had voted against the debt limit under President Bush and that he made a mistake. And if he knew what he knew as president, he wouldn't do the same. I think you look at uh, certainly my view and a lot of my colleagues from the Obama administration when we left the administration we were calling for the debt limit to be raised or even abolished and that to be done um, without conditions because what we went through, we didn't think anyone should go through, even though I was not very much of a fan um, of President Trump. So I think there's a certain amount of inconsistency here and you know when you negotiate, when you don't and the like. So I agree with Rohit on that. Hmm. Um, but I do think 2019 is maybe not a complete dichotomy from now difference. But it's a pretty big difference um, in emphasis, and that's important. I don't think anyone seriously thought that Nancy Pelosi was going to cause a default. What she came up with was something that actually President Trump liked. He was fine with those spending increases. He wasn't. She wasn't asking to undo any core part of his agenda, any core belief of his. So it wasn't, I think, anything close to the type of brinksmanship uh, we're seeing now. Jason, let me follow up with you because uh – Joe Biden, the Democrats say the Republicans are basically taking the economy hostage. But on the other hand, couldn't Democrats have avoided this if they had tackled the debt ceiling before the last election when they still controlled uh, both houses of Congress? Um, I was reading the New York Times this week uh, that said basically many Democrats welcomed the fight because they thought it was good politics for them. So does this put some of the blame on Biden and the Democrats for this impasse because they could have dealt with this before? Look, from a policy perspective, my view, and Rohit and I wrote this together in the Wall Street Journal a number of years ago, um, is there shouldn't be a debt limit. Other countries don't have this mechanism. I think it's really much more downside than it is upside for the United States. A year ago, I was hoping that Democrats would 
get rid of it. And one way to get rid of it would be to raise it by, you know, one quadrillion dollars. So you're not going to hit it again for thousands and thousands of years. Um, I think ultimately, I wouldn't have been surprised if a majority of Democrats would have done that. But you would have needed every single Democrat to do that, every single Democrat, including Joe Manchin. So I just don't think it was an available option for the president to get done last year. Right. And Rohit, a question to you. Is this tactic that the Republicans are taking? I mean, there's an argument that it's basically anti-democratic in the sense that they're demanding that Biden undo legislation that was passed by Congress, that is, by the American people. I mean, what's what's the response to that position that, you know? So I think it, yeah, it's, yeah, so it's a good question because I think there's a lot of um, misconception, uh, perhaps by accident, perhaps on, on purpose, uh, not in Jason's case, but maybe in, in the case of others, to, to conflate an opening bid with a thing that must be done in order to raise the debt limit. Mm. Now, a handful of House Republicans who are almost for sure not going to vote for the final legislation have said, oh, no, the House bill as written is the floor uh, for what we would consider in conjunction with the debt limit increase. But Speaker McCarthy has, I think, been very careful to not draw that line in the sand. Uh, I mean, his ask essentially is, A, let's have a negotiation and let's talk about is there any spending policy that can be addressed as a part of this transaction. He has not said that I have to have every element of the House passed bill in order to process a debt limit increase that will go to the president's desk for signature. And indeed, I think almost every House Republican, if not every House Republican, fully understands that that bill is not going to become law as written, that many of the things that are in there um, have no chance of passing a Senate that's controlled by Democrats or a White House that you know has a Democrat in office. They're not going to repeal the Inflation Reduction Act uh, green energy incentives as a part of this transaction. That's an opening bid. And I think it's really important to um, disaggregate an opening bid from what would be a necessary and sufficient condition for getting something through both chambers and to the president's desk. I mean, I get the, uh, I get your point about an opening bid. The, the, where I'm having trouble understanding uh, uh, of how this moves forward is it <laughs> the opening bid um, I mean, they're basically disagreeing over principles. The Republicans want to make passage of, you know, raising the debt limit. Uh, they want to inv- they want to mix it up with negotiations over spending. And J- Joe Biden is saying, no, they've got to be completely separate. So, Jason, how do they c- cross that divide? I don't know exactly how they cross the divide. There is, you know, the debt is a, a backward-looking concept. The amount that we need to borrow is a function of laws that Congress already passed regarding spending and taxes. That's actually why other countries don't have debt limits, because once you've chosen your taxes and spending, you have chosen your debt. Now, the path of the debt in the future depends on future choices um, that Congress makes, and in particular, the spending level for fiscal year 2024 Um, for what's called discretionary spending, which covers everything from education to the military. Um, That has not been set by Congress yet. Uh, President Biden has one number. Um, The House Republicans have another number. I think it would be fair to say the final number will be somewhere between those two. It'll be less spending than President Biden wants. It'll be more spending than the House Republicans want. And there is actually a mechanism for that happening, which is that come... um, September 30th, all of the spending expires and you need to pass a law. And that law has generally been the place where these types of spending negotiations take place and where, you know, they will take place. 
All right, Rohit um, and Jason, hold on for a second because we have to take a quick break. We're talking about lessons learned from the 2011 debt ceiling negotiations as uh, we're analyzing this impasse in Washington today. More when we come back. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. Did you kill Marlene Johnson? I think you're one of the first people to have actually asked. From WBUR and ZSP Media, this is Beyond All Repair, a new podcast about an unsolved murder that will leave you questioning everything. Somebody should be in jail for murdering my sister. A woman who's never been believed. As long as they think I have done this, then they're not looking for who actually did this. And that's what makes it a cold case. No, it's a botched case. And a search for the truth, once and for all. Wow, it just gets more interesting. Beyond All Repair. Listen and follow wherever you get your podcasts. Be careful. You're digging in a place that's been very peaceful for a while. Do it anyway. Dig. This is On Point. I'm Anthony Brooks. We're talking about the impasse on raising the debt ceiling as the country creeps dangerously uh, close to default. My guests are Jason Furman, Aetna Professor of Practice of Economic Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. He spent eight years as a top economic advisor to President Barack Obama and was involved in the 2011 negotiation over raising the debt limit. Also, uh, Rohit Kumar, principal and co-leader of PwC's National Tax Services Practices. He was the former domestic policy director and deputy chief of staff for Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell in those negotiations back in 2011. And I want to talk now about some possible solutions, some possible ways out of this impasse. One possibility, Section 4 of the 14th Amendment. The key words there are, the validity of the public debt of the United States shall not be questioned. Well, what that means has never been entirely clear. We know one thing it means is that the United States pays its debts. So that's Lawrence Tribe. He's the Carl Loeb University Professor of Constitutional Law Emeritus at Harvard University. Tribe says the 14th Amendment pretty much gives the president the authority to raise the debt ceiling on his own. Back in 2011, Tribe didn't like the idea of the president using the 14th Amendment in the case of the debt ceiling. Now he says he's changed his mind. Because the Constitution itself imposes an obligation, a duty, It's not just a matter of power, it's a matter of duty. And the duty is to pay the debts. And if Congress refuses to do it, the president has really no good choice other than to say, well, I'm going to direct that all these payments be made on time. And Tribe says there's an important precedent. Back in 1861, President Abraham Lincoln used the 14th Amendment to get around habeas corpus in his effort to command Union soldiers to defend the country. The precedent that was set when Lincoln did that in 1861 was not the precedent of a tyrannical president who can simply take the law into his own hands. It was the precedent that says when there's a crisis and the president has no choices other than bad ones, he's got to pick the least evil, the least unconstitutional course of action. Now, here's something interesting. After yesterday's meeting with uh, House Speaker McCarthy, and other congressional leaders, President Biden specifically referenced Lawrence Tribe. 
I have been considering the 14th Amendment. And a man I have enormous respect for, Larry Tribe, who advised me for a long time, thinks that it would be legitimate. But the problem is it would have to be litigated. And in the meantime, without an extension, it would still end up in the same place. Okay, so we're going to talk about a number of ways out. I'll start with you, uh, Rohit Kumar. What do you think uh, of all this? Um, is the 14th Amendment uh, a, a possible road out here? I don't think it is. And the reason, uh, I don't think it is for a number of reasons, not not the least of which is the the rationale that the president stated in the, in the clip that you just played, which is there would be tremendous uncertainty around any debt issued past the X date. Investors would quite rationally demand a higher interest rate uh, to sort of hedge the risk that a, a court would subsequently strike that debt down as unlawfully issued. And to some degree, the consequences are the same, right? The consequences of defaulting on our debt are um, a higher interest rate environment. We no longer borrow on historically favorable terms um, or on terms that are far more favorable than our debt to GDP ratio would otherwise suggest reasonable. I think the other problem is, okay, fine, you can pay your debts. Well, we have enough revenue coming in to pay our debt obligations. The problem is we don't have enough revenue to coming in to pay our debt obligations and a host of other contractually due payments like to Social Security and Medicare and troops and you know things like that. So uh, there's not even I don't think you would actually have to necessarily invoke a constitutional prerogative that may not stand on firm legal footing. You could just and this is and this is why I think this argument is particularly dangerous. There is a cohort of lawmakers, um, Republican lawmakers to be clear, who argue, well, you just prioritize payments once you cross the X date. If you know we only have revenues to support about three fourths of current government spending, then we only do three-fourths of government spending, but well inside that three-fourths is our you know, bond obligations. And so the more that these arguments are made, the more it actually emboldens the minority of lawmakers who say, eh, maybe the sex state isn't such a big deal. Interesting. Jason Furman, your thoughts on the 14th Amendment? I think it would be a really bad option. Hmm. Now, the White House should be trying to understand it and comparing it to the other really bad options. Um, to understand why it's really bad, you would be, you'd declare it. Other people would say, no, that's not constitutional. You'd then go and have to do a treasury auction. There's just to roll over the debt, about a trillion dollars of treasuries, new borrowing needs to happen in the month of June. And you're conducting those auctions in an environment where the people don't know whether or not that debt is legal. And there's a debate about whether that debt is legal. That could be extremely um, ugly. And then what would the court decide? I'm not a lawyer. Rohit is. But I do get a little bit nervous when I hear Larry Tribe say, I myself thought this was not constitutional 12 <laughs> years ago, but I've come around. If he thought it 12 years ago, might the Supreme Court think what he thought 12 years ago rather than what he happens to think now? Um, so then you'd be back in this a month ago from right. now. So yes, it's a bad thing. Um, but as Rohit said, prioritization, where you only pay some bills and not other bills, is a really bad thing too. And so... If we go over the X date, you'll have to compare bad things. If anyone is under the illusion that there's anything other than bad things after the X date, um, I very much agree with Rohit. That will embolden them to drive a worse solution to the whole problem than we otherwise would have. Can we talk really quickly about another thing that I keep reading about that just sort of blows my mind because I just don't understand in the anyway how it's possible. The Treasury Department could simply mint a $1 trillion coin. So this, this essentially creates money out of thin air to cover the country's debts. 
Secretary Janet Yellen calls it a gimmick, but folks, uh, some serious people are still talking about this as a, as a real possibility. Jason, how would this work? Would it work? Yeah, so there is a statute that says that the Treasury can mint platinum coins and sell them for whatever it wants. Presumably, the statute meant whatever it wants is like $5, $10, or $20. Yeah. Um, I don't think they envisioned a trillion dollars. I remember hearing this for the first time on a, a blog post in 2011, and I was walking into a meeting with Secretary Tim Geithner, and I said, what do you think about the platinum coin? Um, he hadn't even heard of it, and I think he just laughed the first time um, I mentioned it. As a legal matter, again, I'm not a lawyer, but sometimes the courts have said just because you can find some technical way in which a law was poorly drafted, you know, probably Congress didn't really intend um, to allow this to happen and they would stop it. Um, I don't know if the courts would stop it or wouldn't stop it. But in the interim, you first of all implicated the Fed in all of this. You've dragged them in. They have a hard enough time keeping their independence, keeping their reputation. You still have to conduct those treasury auctions just to roll over the debt, and you have no idea if they will work. So I think this is another terrible option. And I think, by the way, within the space of terrible options, I would debate prioritization versus the 14th Amendment before I would consider um, this one. Interesting. Rohit, um, minting a, a one million, a $1 trillion coin, good idea? I mean, the, the only question I have is why would we stop at a trillion? I mean, if we're going <laughs> to go for like a made-up fictional solution, right, why aren't we also minting a unicorn uh, yeah. or a pegasus? Let's go with a flying unicorn. I mean, this is just all kind of fantasy land. I, look, I will admit, though, there was a time in 2011 in the depths of despair when I didn't really see a path forward and I thought we were going to default on the debt that I was – briefly rooting for the platinum coin to become a real thing, but mostly to free me of the obligation of being chained to my desk to continue to kind of hammer away at this issue. But it was only in that brief moment of despair where I thought, well, this would be fantastic because I could get to go home and see my wife, uh, that I thought the platinum coin was a good idea. All right. So let's talk about another possible solution. Um, so Democrats and Republicans could come together and work out a deal. And I'm thinking back to the deal back in 2011 where lawmakers passed the Budget Control Act of 2011. I'm going to try to sum this up, right? So it increased the debt ceiling, but guaranteed a similar amount of longer-term savings from defense and non-defense spending. Um, Jason, was that a good deal for the country? And could something like that be worked out again? I think the Budget Control Act wasn't particularly great, but it wasn't particularly horrible, at least in terms of how it ended up being implemented. Um, just to understand, the conversations in 2011 started actually with a certain amount of hope and upside. We were talking about revenue-raising tax reform. We were talking about entitlement reform, some of which would actually strengthen the programs. Um, there were all sorts of really cool ideas on the table. But as time went on, basically almost all of them fell off the table. Mm. And all that was left was this thing that in the abstract seems like one big blob, discretionary spending. But then when you get down to specifics, it's lots and lots and lots of different things. So um, we set an overall target for what that was. We also set up a process to come up with even more deficit reduction. And if that process didn't work, something called the sequester would kick in to replace that deficit reduction. And the reduction. sequester was um, automatic budget reductions, essentially, right? It was automatic budget reductions if Congress didn't come up with a yeah. better plan. Right. Now, what ended up happening was roughly every other year, 
Congress turned off a lot of those spending cuts, and sometimes they would find new ways to save money to pay for it. Sometimes they'd find gimmicks. Sometimes they wouldn't even pretend. And so what ended up happening was cuts that were much smaller than what was initially legislated. I I sort of prefer what ultimately happened um, to what was initially legislated. But in general, you know, if you want to deal with the budget and want to deal with the deficit, I'd much rather see a conversation about what's the best way to raise taxes and what's the best way to save money in programs like Medicare rather than just keep going back again and again to the well of programs like education, research, um, and national defense. And Rohit, let me bring you in on this. The, the, the 2011 Budget Control Act of 2000, uh, the Budget Control Act of 2011, does that uh, present a, a workable model of some kind that, that might help lawmakers today come up with a solution? So it is a workable model um, in the sense that, you know, uh, discretionary spending caps that uh, take that last for the next decade can generate a lot of savings, at least on paper, even if one of the lessons of the Budget Control Act is uh, spending caps that uh, extend beyond the current Congress are not likely to be respected by a subsequent Congress. Like a subsequent Congress is going to have its own thoughts about what's the appropriate spending level and anything you can do by statute, um, you can undo by statute. I think the one thing the Budget Control Act had and the way I think about it is, you know, a proposal that had a lot of potential, but just failed to live up to it. And I don't mean because subsequent Congresses turned off the discretionary spending reductions. I mean, because the interim step between the Budget Control Act and the sequester was something called the Joint Select Committee on Deficit Reduction, which took on the moniker of Super Committee, because it had really broad authority to try to resurrect the sort of grand bargain. This is a term of art, I suppose, in Washington, D.C., the grand bargain of revenue increases on one side of the ledger, spending reductions through entitlement reform on the other side of the ledger, and to try to narrow the persistent gap between mm. what we collect and what we spend. Now, that, that committee failed uh, to reach an agreement, and then the sequester was triggered thereafter, and then subsequent Congresses decided, no, thank you, we don't like the sequester, and we won't abide by it. So I could see some version of discretionary spending caps that persist for the next 10 years, even if I think only the next year or two are likely to hold. I could see another collateral process where you set up a separate committee to try to address these issues in a more kind of fulsome, serious way. Senator Romney has a proposal called the Trust Act and embedded in that are what he calls rescue committees, which are to rescue the entitlements from their pending insolvency. It's got some bipartisan support, but the truth of the matter is, I think even if we did all of that, I just don't feel like we are in a political moment where we're about to have a big bipartisan kumbaya where we're going to do bunch of tax increases and a bunch of entitlement reform spending reductions and right-size the state of fiscal ship. And so, you know, it might provide a framework to get through this problem, but I don't think it's ultimately going to be a vehicle for solving the longer-term issues that we face. And to be clear, I was describing what I thought should happen. Right. I absolutely agree with Rohit uh, that that won't happen. All right. I want to bring Claudia Grisales back into the conversation, congressional correspondent for NPR, who kicked off this hour for us. And Claudia, I know you've been listening along. I want to ask you about a specific possibility for a route out. Uh, Democrats could cut a deal with a handful of moderate Republicans. They would need at least five, I guess, to do that. Is that something that's being talked about? If so, how likely a a scenario would that be? 
Yeah, so th- this is something that a lot of members were hearing about in terms of trying to see if they can break members from the other side to see if there is a pathway forward. Uh, but that is going to be a very tough road ahead in terms of being able to do that. Um, and as we talked about earlier, it's going to be very hard for McCarthy to keep his conference together. They had a conference meeting this morning, for example, and a lot of members did not sound like they were ready to budge when they were coming out of of their meeting. And so that just sets up in terms of the challenges that they're facing, even if they want to break members from the other side onto theirs in terms of some sort of deal, how much work that's going to take. Right. And Claudia, this is a sort of final question to all three of you. I'll start with you, Claudia. Is there a long-term fix for this that's being discussed so that we don't end up repeating this crisis negotiation that puts the U.S. and global economy and the global economy at risk every few years? I mean, there's got to be a better way. Are people talking about that? They have in the past when Democrats were in charge of the Senate and the House that did come up. uh, This hope that there could be some sort of long term solution. Of course, in the Senate, they did not have enough votes from Republicans. They still needed 10 Republicans to swing to their side if they were going to come up with some sort of permanent fix. And so if they couldn't do it, then it's going to be even harder now with divided government and these uh, extreme wings of the House Republican Party. So there is that that hope there, but it's a ways off in right. terms of when they could get there. Rohit Kumar, uh, Rohit Kumar, f- final thought from you on the possibility of a permanent fix. We've got about 15 seconds left. Yeah, look, there are proposals out there. There were bipartisan proposals, even in the last Congress, something called the Responsible Budgeting Act that uh, Congressman Arrington and Congressman Peters introduced, a Republican and a Democrat. For folks that are interested in this, I would recommend looking at it. It's a really thoughtful proposal that uh, always allows us to increase the debt limit so long as we at least have a conversation about the state of fiscal ship. We don't have to do anything. There's no ransoming the economy. None of that rhetoric would come into play. Just a forced conversation to assess Hmm. where we are. And I think that's the reasonable approach ahead. Jason Furman, final thought from you. We should abolish the debt limit, but we also should be doing something to make our government function better um, and more sustainably. I'd love to see those be two separate things without the drama, without the downside, with all the upside, um, and a, a person can dream. Amen to that. In the meantime, the impasse continues. Jason Furman, Aetna Professor of the Practice of Economic Policy at the Harvard Kennedy School. Rohit Kumar, Principal and Co-Leader of PwC's National Tax Services Practice. Thank you both for coming in. Really appreciate it. And Claudia Grisales, correspondent, congressional correspondent for NPR. Claudia, it was great having you. Thank you for being such an able guide this hour. We appreciate it. Thank you much. I'm Anthony Brooks. This is On Point. <laughs> 